Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran, speaking today with Dr. Kevin McGrath of Cambridge on a fascinating uh, publication called Vyasa Redux. Um, Kevin, uh, it's a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. So tell us, tell us how perhaps this book began. How did you start this journey? Well, um, this ties together a sequence of books that I've written about Mahabharata, um, beginning with Karna, the hero of Karna, um, the son of the sun, and then proceeding through other characters in, in the, the poem. And this, I think, is my final work. So in a sense, I'm ending at the beginning because Vyasa is the, the Adi poet, the original poet of the poem. So all the other elements are come together, converge, and meet in this book. And I couldn't have written this at the beginning because I, I didn't actually know what was happening in the, in the poem then. Um, as you know, the Mahabharata is this gigantic, uh, epic work. And moving through it has taken many, many years. So this, I hope... Uh, is my final point. So, um, the Mahabharata is certainly an epic work. Um, it is um, deliciously labyrinthine, and, and it's impossible to dip your toe in without being immersed, it seems. You can't just have a taste. You, you dip your toe in, and then all of a sudden you're down the rabbit hole. It's, it's a very complex work, so it's understandable why it would take you um, years to have something to say about it. Could you say a little bit, uh, before we dive into the details of your um, of your study, could you share um, what, in your view, the Mahabharata is, or how does it function? How do you regard the Mahabharata? Well, as many say, there are many Mahabharatas, um, and this poem is an aggregation of several poetic traditions which have been generated and transmitted for millennia. So for me, the, the poem separates into two streams, as it were. Um, one is a, a Kshatriya, Kshatriya uh, work of poetry, and the other is uh, a priestly, a Brahminical work of poetry. And these two threads, these two strands, have been combined immaculately and with extraordinary beauty and uh, preconception. And what I have focused on in my work is principally the former, that is the, the, the Kshatriya thread of uh, epic Mahabharata. And what I do in my teaching is no longer Mahabharata studies, but I teach Homeric poetry, Homeric literature and culture. And much of the methodology in my work comes from the methodology and conceptual apparatus used by scholars in uh, who look at the Homeric Iliad. So I've taken certain ideas, concepts from those scholars and certain methods of analysis and applied those to the Mahabharata, the Kshatriya, warrior aspect of Mahabharata. Um, the study of ritual tradition, which is what you seem to focus on, Raj, in your work, is secondary in my impetus. What I'm looking at is the substance of this poetry in terms of culture, in terms of politics, in terms of economics, and also the, the fashioning, how the poets must have worked. How did the poem come to mind for them? Um, how was it performed? What were those mnemonic techniques um, in late Bronze Age poetic delivery? Um, so this poem is about a contention between two sides of a family, 
two sides of the clan, as you know. And one side is practices patrilineal uh, kinship, and the other practices matrilineal kinship. And they contend, and one of them wins and receives the kingdom. So that's, does that answer your question, Raj? Yes, I believe it does. And it's, it's more sort of just to give the opportunity to, to, to share some of your thinking. It seems that nothing can be said uh, conclusively about the Mahabharata. Um, in terms of this, um, oh, there's a number of threads there. Um, let's maybe talk about um, what you actually end with with your book, what you've touched on already, which is the extent to which this poem can be compared to uh, Homeric uh, epics. Um, could you say a little bit about that and what you find in the book? Well, the Mahabharata is far more archaic, let's say that, and it's much larger, so that one can look at Mah the Mahabharata, and I'm, when I talk about Mahabharata, I talk about epic Mahabharata. I don't talk about the aspects of the poem which concern ritual tradition or what you would call religion. So th this poem, Mahabharata, is far older and far greater than the Homeric Iliad. And let's exclude Homeric Odyssey, because that's a different tradition. So by looking at the epic Mahabharata, and also being with the Kshatriya community in Western Gujarat, in the Kutch, where I've done fieldwork, I can then go and look at the Homeric Iliad and discover far more than is immediately apparent in that poem. Um, because it is so compressed and so streamlined and refined. It has a degree of perfection which the Mahabharata doesn't have, but the Mahabharata is older and quantitatively, quantitatively greater. So it's, for me, Mahabharata is a useful lens which I can peer through to understand what is happening in uh, the Homeric Iliad. So just to clarify for audience, oh, as a quick aside, um, our methodologies are, are probably more similar than you think in that, um, you know, really I focus on royal ideology uh, as discernible from the content of the text, the world within the text that I'm primarily interested in. One of the differences is that when I look at the, the, the Devi Mahatmya as we have it, um, I look at it as a whole. And so could you say something about, um, when you look at the critical edition of the Mahabharata, there are parts uh, which you focus on, and there are parts which you do not. And could you say about, tell us about that process and that sort of criteria? Right, all right. So what I do is I perform a close reading. And in that, I read very slowly and very carefully and particularly look for repetitions. It's like a child having a piece of paper with lots of numbers on the paper, and the numbers indicate dots. And if you draw a line between those dots, one, two, three, four, the child ends up drawing a dragon or a lion. Close reading is like that. You look at the word Raja. You look at the word um, Kirti. Um, you look at the word Shura. And nowadays, it's very easy because we, ha we have the online text and you can do a word search in two seconds. So that is one way of identifying um, a system. And if in that system, say, book 12 doesn't occur at all, well, one doesn't look at book 12. Um, secondly, there is an Aristotelian uh, distinction between uh, plot and story, muthos and praxeos. And plot concerns the causal sequence of events. Raj walked into the bar, pulled out his revolver, shot the, the attendant, grabbed the money, ran outside, and took an airplane to Delhi. That's the plot, the, 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 the causal sequence of events. Story is um, the temporal sequence of events. One morning, Raj Balkaran woke up and looked at his telephone and noticed that there was a message from his fiancée in Kolkata and thought, oh dear, I must go there quickly. 
Um, that has nothing to do with the plot, but it's an embellishment of what happened before Raj walked into the, the bar and shot the attendant. The causal sequence of events and the temporal sequence of events. So if you track why the Pandavas are doing certain things and why what led to their contention on the battlefield at Kurukshetra with the, the Dhatarashtras, that gives you the plot. And then you look at the, the consequences of that. So, and if the plot ends in book 11, that is what you look at. The rest is story. The Markandeya description of what happens in the forest, the uh, Ramopakyana, the, the description of Rama's micro-narrative, um, Shantipavan, the Anushasana Pavan, they embellish that plot, but they are not part of the causal sequence. So that gives you two methodological approaches to how one understands this. And then thirdly, there is an essay, which is where I began many, many years ago um, by Hopkins about the, the culture of the Kshatriyas. And Hopkins draws much of his data from the Mahabharata. And that is where I really begin. I look at Kshatriyas. I don't really look at uh, Brahminical culture or otherwise, or the deities or such. I look at heroes and heroines who live and walk and uh, sometimes dine with, sometimes make love with, sometimes enter into contest with the deities. And it is that world which I focus on. Whereas other parts of the poem concern simply the divine world, or simply the world which is uh, urban. What does a king do in a situation? What does a king do with taxes and so on? So those are three very skimpy and brief and highly reductive outlines of my, or some of my methods. Does that satisfy you? Yes, absolutely. It's, this is the amuse-bouche, right? This is, uh, this is uh, to sort of uh, convey to folks uh, what they can hope to dive into uh, if and when they, they, they choose to read your book. Uh, so just one, one more point of clarification on that. When you talked earlier about sort of the, the masterful or innate structure of the Mahabharata, would you, in your view, would that structure... Um, uh, be inclusive of, uh, for example, the Ramabhakana or the, 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 the elements that embellish story? Or would you say that ornate structure uh, would exclude those bits? No, it, it, it definitely, it includes that. But, and I would, but what, what we're talking about now is what we, we discussed earlier, Raj, when during the Guptas, perhaps during the time of Samudra Gupta, when writing was extant, this poem was assembled in a manner of bricolage. It's, what you have in this poem is not synoptic. It doesn't have one point of view. There are a myriad points of view. There are a myriad um, temporal sequences. Time in this poem is not A, B, C, D. It's, it's multidimensional. It's polytropic. Um, so what happened under the Guptas was that these elements of many um, pre-literate traditions were assimilated into one poem, the Mahabharata, 100,000 plus X verses. And if you look at the poem, or if you read the poem, you can see from, not just from book to book, sometimes from Adhyaya to Adhyaya, chapter to chapter, that the style of poetry is so different. It's like saying you have a chapter by Hemingway, a chapter by Trollope, a chapter by Wordsworth, a chapter by um, Shakespeare. The style of, of poetry is so different. And so the, the, this idea of assembly, of bringing together many elements is, is obvious to me. But then, if you look at the, the how those elements have been combined, the detail of precision and the detail of um, 
organizing the aesthetics of the poem is brilliant. It's it's magnificent and it's it's almost irrational. It's in a sense, it's indestructible. You can't actually take it apart and look at, oh, this is the spring, this is the balance wheel, this is the crankshaft, this is the, the valve. The, the structure of the poem is so complex and so irrational that it fits together perfectly, despite all these highly disparate elements. And it is that which allows one to say, oh yes, the Ramopakhyana is very much part of this poem, but the Ramopakhyana is not part of the plot. So you see my point? And so I'm not trying to be dismissive, I'm just trying to limit this vast field so that I, as an, anal I, as an analyst, can actually do some work. Otherwise, it's too vast. It's, it's impossible for somebody like me who looks at details only and reads very slowly and carefully. If I have to deal with the whole poem, it's, it would take me 300 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've, you've established a methodology that seems to work for you for, let's say, delineating certain ways within the ocean. Right, that's what we all do. You do that, um, other scholars do that. We all have our own methodologies and they're sure. not exclusive. It's like saying, well, we drive on the left here and you drive on the right there, but we can still go from Boston to Massachusetts. It, it, or if you have different kinds of automobile. It's not that I am right and they are wrong, or they're right and I am wrong. It's we're all moving along the highway in different automobiles and on different parts of the road. It's That's the nature of humanism. We, it's not the question that this methodology is more accurate or more rigorous. It's just we have, there are many methodologies. Uh, just a quick uh, comment on um, the the sort of uh, structure, the the the, the unity, the, the 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 organization that you perceive. You know, I, I very much agree. You describe it as irrational. I I think I understand what you're driving at. I tend to describe such things as sort of transrational, in that they're not. It's not that they um, make no sense. It is that. Uh, they're just the cusp of, of, of your ability to make sense of them, but they're there. But I do understand what you mean. Um, right. Well, the, the, I think in the late Bronze Age, the culture was very different. So what is rational to us may not be rational to those people. Um, and their mnemonic systems are, were very different. How they remembered things, how the poets remembered the, 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 the motifs, the themes, and the narratives and the voices and the metaphors and the similes, they have a particular mnemonic system for engaging that. They're performers, they're, they're versatile virtuoso performers and they go on stage in front of an audience and deliver. And if you're a rap artist, if you're a concert pianist, if you're a jazz pianist, um, if you're a Shakespearean uh, actor in the time of the, the Globe Theater, we all have our methodologies. Our, our, our mnemonic systems, our way of remembering and delivering. Um, so it's, we, I can say, yes, that's, it's, it's, it's so irrational that one can't actually explain how it works. But I think they could probably explain how the poetry works. But then you, you have these, whoever it was during the Gupta time, who assembled this work, and they have a different... Uh, thought process for making their connections. The metonymy is very different in the Gupta time compared to, say, the late Bronze Age period. So, what is what, what if, say, on one hand you have raw and the cooked in late Bronze Age, in in Gupta periods where you talk about something raw and something cooked, it means something different. The connection, the metonymy is different. If you see my point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, just a quick. Uh a quick point, and then we'll talk about the main subject of your work, which is its author. Um, so for you, the Mabart is most certainly an oral composition that was later written down. Well, this is, the university I work has a, an intellectual tradition going back to the late 19th century when scholars first began to collect what was referred to as uh, folklore, folk literature. Um, particularly ballads. And then in the earlier 20th century, you had two scholars who went to do field work in Bosnia 
amongst the Muslim poets, and they discovered that those poets didn't, not only did they not know how to, to read or write, um, but when they performed, it was different every time. So that what is happening is that they compose the poem in performance, drawing upon this huge um, store of metaphors, themes, lines, motifs, much like a rap artist works or a jazz musician works, um, or a pianist will extemporize uh, if you give them a certain uh, melody. So, yes, I work with the what we used to call the oral tradition, which we now refer to as pre-literacy. That is literature which is not written down. And it's not just that literature that is not written down is different from literature which is written down. It's that consciousness, human consciousness during that time is very different from when you have writing. And once you have writing, you have prose, for instance. Once you have writing, you have linear systems because you can say, well, in this year we did this, and this year we, we, we had the pandemic, and then the next year we, we instituted much greater taxes, and then the following year we had a war. In a preliterate system, you don't have that linear sequence of recollection. Recollection and mnemonic systems are very different. So preliteracy is something much earlier than what we have now when we look at the poem and the preliterate aspects of the poem, which is what I've spent 20 years trying to identify, is the focus of my work. And for me, in a nutshell, and I wrote a book about this, the preliterate poets are inspired visually and the literate poets are inspired acoustically. There's a distinction there. And you can see how this functions if you look at the, the text of the Mahabharata. Um, so I would make that uh, point in, in response to your question, but I'm not sure whether it answers your question, Raj. Well, it's, um, it's a fascinating um, set of ideas. My question is uh, much like the, much like the, perhaps the preliterate modality uh, you're alluding to, my questions are meant to be expansive. It, they, they are generative. They're not meant to be restrictive or to delineate specifically. But this unique route is, is, the, is the exchange for me. And so, so that that's certainly, um, certainly addresses what I was striving at because that, that theme seems to be very important for your work. Now, your, um, we've spent so much time talking about the Mahabharata, which I think needs to be the case. Your book in particular is about this certain figure of Vyasa, who is uh, the author of the Mahabharata and so much more. Um, who is Vyasa? Um, well, in, in Hindu traditions, in popular Hindu traditions today, as you know, 21st century traditions or 20th century traditions, Vyasa is the author. He wrote the Mahabharata. That's what people say. Um, for me, Vyasa, and the word just means one who separates, um, he separated the Vedas into their constituent elements, the Rig Veda and so on, um, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda. Um, Vyasa is the name of a particular poet. And when I, you use the word author, for me, an author is someone who writes, someone who has authority. Um, who authorizes a text. What I look at is essentially preliterate poetry. So there are no authors there. There are a multitude of poets, and they all take their poetry from each other and, and embellish it and develop it and sometimes refine it. So Vyasa is the name of that character who indicates the origin of that tradition. But that tradition you can look at as originating beyond what we now refer to as India or Bharat and going back into the Indian Indo-Aryan world where there are certain um, 
motifs, there are certain themes, there are certain social or economic patterns which the Vyasic tradition drew upon. And you can see those uh, motifs and themes and patterns in Homeric poetry, for instance, or in Northern Europe, European epic poetry. There is this hypothetical source, just as you have uh, the uh, Indo-Aryan uh, source of Sanskrit language. So that is the blood which infuses what Vyasa does. And um, you then have this poet who is the creator of the poem, but he is also an agent or an actor or a character in the poem. And it's as if you have William Shakespeare in his 10 history plays. And if you put all those 10 history plays of Shakespeare together, it's rather like what you have in the Mahabharata, this historical or this idealized historical narrative. It's as if you have Shakespeare, the, the poet of these dramas, appearing on stage and talking to Henry IV or talking to Richard and saying, well, this is what's going to happen in the future, Richard. Don't be sad. Or, well, this is what happened in the past, Henry. So this is why we should move now. Or whispering to um, Richard II saying, well, this is, the, this is the secrecy behind this ritual, which I am only going to tell you. So Vyasa is this unique character. I've never come across a character like this before in literature, who is supposedly the generator, the creator of the work, and yet is also within the poem as a character who comes and goes and vanishes and disappears or sometimes is there, apparently, but says nothing for long periods of time. So again, this is what we referred to earlier, Raj, when we talked about the irrational. How is it that somebody can be the creator of this poem, which ranges for seven generations um, or even more, or perhaps even yugas, um, and yet be, be, be within the poem, predicting the future, recollecting the past, indicating a correct course for present action. Um, and, well, let's leave it at that. Well, he's, um, certainly there's this, uh, this paradox of, of him being the, 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 the creator of the work and not only being present in the work, but being, pun intended, a seminal figure. He's actually a progenitor of, um, of, 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 of the line of characters in the work. Um, so, there, you know, there is this conundrum that is certainly uh, worthy of exploration. So one rarely understands why you would choose as the topic of your study, um, making sense of this, this um, complex literary trope. Um, right. Yes. So... In the Adipava, Ugrashavas, this one of the poets, um, talks about how the Bharata, not the Mahabharata, the Bharata, was originally composed by Vyasa, and it, was, it contained 24,000 verses. Now, what we have in the poem contains, I, I, don't, I don't know, say 100,000 verses. So that is the Mahabharata. Vyasa is the composer reputedly of the Bharata, these 24,000 verses. And that Bharata, we don't know what it is. It's hypothetical. It's like the zero in mathematics. It, it, you don't really know what it is, and yet it's always there. Um, you cannot quantify it or, or identify it, but like the zero in mathematics, it allows you to perform acts of numeration. So it, this, this hypothetical Bharata allows us to think of the poem as um, the, the full narrative, but we don't actually know what Vyasa composed. And then in terms of reproductivity and um, how kinship works, as we mentioned earlier, there are two system styles of kinship in the poem. One is patrilineal, one is matrilineal and they contend for the throne. Um, so when you talk about Vyasa's presence genetically 
there is an important distinction to be made. Could you please say a bit more about that distinction and about the, 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 the patrilineal and matrilineal um, um, modes that you talk about? Well, the, the Dhatarashtras, the, the sons of Dhatarashtra, um, practice, it would seem, to be patrilineal uh, kinship. They, they, you have the father, the son, the son, the son, the son. Um, the Dhatarashtras don't really have any familial arrangements. You, one hears that Duryodhana uh, attended a Svayambara for a bride, but that's about it. Um, there is Gandhari, who produces these, these children um, with the aid of Vyasa, and yet we don't really hear about that family at all. Whereas the, the Pandavas, these five half-brothers um, with their mother, uh, practice a system or the lineage is continued through a system of matrilineal uh, kinship. So that what you actually have is the success, ultimately, at the end of the poem, of the Yadava clan. Um, Janamajaya Parikshit are more Yadava than they are anything else. So this is a success for the, the clan of Krishna. And how does Vyasa influence that? Well, it's, he's part of the poem as a character who is working with Krishna and with Bhishma. How do they work? Well, they work through telepathy. <laughs> Are you following me, Raj, or is this becoming... I certainly am. No, you're, you're, this, is a, this is a great opportunity to dive into the nuts and bolts of what you're arguing. So, the, the poem... We, we don't know what those 24,000 verses are. The poem doesn't tell us that. But if you look at the, 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 um, the list of the books in the Adipavan, if you add up the number of verses in the four Kurukshetra books and the following Saptakapavan, they add up to, all, to about 24,000 verses. So that's our first point of evidence. And then secondly, at the beginning of the first of those Kurukshetra books, the Bhishma Pavan, you have Vyasa performing an act of what is called Dhyana, um, D-H-Y-A-N-A, -A, which is generally translated as uh, nowadays as meditation, but you and I would probably translate it as profound reflection. It is this concentration of psychic energy which allows one to apprehend certain kinds of experience or knowledge which are not available in the world. And that is how the, what happens right at the beginning of the Bhishma Pava. And then Vyasa supplies Sanjaya, who is the poet who performs those four poems, with an uh, with this extraordinary skill that is sanjaya can see what is happening in the distance he can hear what is happening in the distance and he can listen to people talking in the distance and thinking in the distance so from vyasa vyasa performs dhyana he supplies sanjaya with this this skill of um, psychic perception or super psychic perception and that is how Sanjaya apprehends what occurs in the four central Kurukshetra books. Now and again, he's there, but most of the time, he's, he's a few miles away. Now, just to develop that even further, the only other occasions where you have this word in the poem, dhyana, concern Krishna and Bhishma. So, just two points, two footnotes. This, I think, is the first mention of dhyana in Sanskrit literature, I would say. Um, and it's connected with Vyasa, with uh, Krishna, and with Bhishma. 
So as we were talking about the, the child and making lines between the dots and you have a picture of a dragon or a lion, if you look for this word, Diana, it doesn't occur frequently. And it occurs concerning these three characters, uh, Vyasa, Krishna, and Bhishma. And Bhishma communicates with Krishna through Dhyana. It's, it's, it's in, very specifically, this is how they, they don't actually speak to each other, and sometimes they're quite distant from each other. They, they communicate telepathically. And it is, if you look at what we were talking about earlier on as the structure of the plot, remember the temporal sequence of events, not the, sorry, the causal sequence of events, not the temporal sequence of events. Krishna and Bhishma are the two heroes who oversee how the plot is developing. So this relation then between Krishna, Krishna, Bhishma, and Vyasa is central to the activity of the basic plot of the Mahabharata. Now that's extremely complicated, and I hope I um, expressed it simply. <laughs> well, uh, certainly, um, um, certainly, when one looks at the characters in the epics, um, however exalted the, the, the multitude of, of, of beings and sages are in the epic, certainly um, Krishna, Bhishma, and Vyasa have um, arguably the most profound psychic abilities. Uh, Dhyana appears to be um, inwardly accessing the cosmic wireless, so to speak, <laughs> being plugged into this, this, this ability to know what's to come and what has been. And so... Uh, what you're saying is you've you've looked at the word dhyana in the text and you've identified that it's specifically used uh, in the context of the abilities and activities of these three characters and you're now crafting an argument based on that observation which for you is obviously um, intentional in the text right and that's taken a huge amount of work to, to arrive at that point it took five minutes to describe it um, and when krishna performs his Theophanies, and there are three of them. Um, one is described by Markandeya. We were talking about that earlier. One occurs with the chariot at the beginning of the Bhishma Parvan, um, when he is there with his hero, Arjuna. And then the other occurs a little bit before in the Udyoga Parvan, where Krishna uh, performs a theophany in the Sabha, revealing his cosmic nature to the assembled warriors. And those instance of uh, theophany are connected with dhyana. Krishna actually says, this is my, my, my yoga. And in the, it's the Anushasana Pavan, Krishna says to Arjuna, referring back to what we now call the Gita, this instance of initiation, cosmic initiation, um, where Krishna reveals the nature of the universe, when they're talking about it in the Anushasana Pavan, Arjuna says, "Ah, I forgot what it was that you, you actually initiated me in, the knowledge which you initiated me towards, Krishna. Can you tell me again? And Krishna says, he's angry, he's irate. He says, no, I can't. That was in a state of yoga then. I cannot do that. But I, what I can do is I can tell you um, about uh, how a Brahmin described this similar uh, cosmic perception to me at, an, an, at another time, and that's the Anugita. So this dimension of theophany is part of that system of um, mysterious knowledge um, which is lies at, for me, which lies at the heart of the Mahabharata, uh, as I've tried to explain it to you, but I'm not sure whether I've been successful. Um, I'm certainly following what you're saying, and it's it's all fascinating. So, um, what would you? So that um, observation as central that you just note. 
why do you think that pertains to what you would call the, the Kshatriya epic? Because, and I wrote another book earlier on in time called Heroic Krishna, where I looked at Krishna as a hero rather than what he later became, uh, where he is considered to be a deity. And I focus upon certain two words or three words there. One is Dvao Krishnao, um, the, the, the two dark ones, the, 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 the double Krishna. And the other is the Naraya, Nara Narayana, um, the, the conjunct Nara and Narayana. And in the Dvao Krishna, which is how Arjuna and Krishna are referred to in the, um, mainly in, in those four Kurukshetra books, as hero and charioteer, Arjuna is the semi-divine figure and Krishna is mortal. And the Nara Narayana duality, which happens elsewhere in the poem, not so much in the four Kurukshetra books, concerns the duality of Arjuna, the hero, and Krishna, Narayana, as the divine element. So you have two very distinct components here. One, both looking at the same couple, but from very different temporal points of view. Um, and for me, the, the Gita is the, for me, it's the navel of the poem. Out of that comes the whole poem, because that is the beginning, right at the beginning of the Bhishma Parvan, which for me is, the, is central to this, what you referred to as Vyasa's narrative. Now, does, is, does that solve your, your, answer your question a little bit, Raj? Uh, it sure does. Why is the book called Vyasa's Redux? Because what I've tried to do is bring back all the dimensions of Vyasa, which are presently lost, because nowadays people think that Vyasa is the author. Vyasa dictated the poem to uh, Ganesha, who wrote it down. Um, what I tried to do textually, empirically, is to retrieve the various dimensions and aspects of Vyasa which are embedded in the poem, which are lost to that contemporary 20, 20th, 21st century model of um, Vyasa as the author. Uh, and some of that I've tried to describe to you just now. It seems that the complexity of Vyasa certainly befits the complexity of, of, of the Mahabharata. Um, Yes. Can I, can I just go back to one, one question? Because there's something else I'd like to add. Um, and it's about why you're, you're asking why is the guitar, that moment of theophany, so central to Kshatriya culture? Well, if you look at instances in the poem where chariots are described, and chariots for me are the signifier of the archaic. In the more classical parts of the poem, chariots are irrelevant. And Krishna is the best portrait of a bronze, late Bronze Age charioteer that we have in any of this literature in the world. Now, he, one of the the task in, in this book, Hero Krishna, I describe what, what charities did, particularly as evinced by Krishna's activity. And they're great veterinarians, they're skilled in language, um, they're ambassadors, they, they know how to manage the, the chariot because a, a warrior has to fire from one side, so the charioteer has to position the chariot in the right direction. The charioteer knows all the names of the enemies and can perform as a poet recalling the deeds of his hero. The word sutta is uh, the word for charioteer, and the sutta are the, 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 the poet class in antiquity. And one thing that charioteers do is that quite often at the onset of battle, the hero is 
horrified and terrified and begins to panic and drops the bow and their mouth becomes very dry and their head whirls and they, they become listless. And it is the task of the charioteer to restore the energy and the vitality and the warrior vitality of the, uh, the hero. And this happens quite often in the, po in the poem, and it happens in, in the, the, the four Kurukshetra books and elsewhere. And when, in one occasion, um, Krishna is the hero, and his charioteer is the one to be restoring his vitality when Krishna panics before battle. So this situation of the Gita, which is part of that model of the charioteer reviving the lack of energy in the hero um, is very much part of the uh, intrinsic to the world of Kshatriyas in that charioteering is the key activity um, indicating that late Bronze Age uh, heroic or martial uh, work, um, driving and fighting from a chariot in battle. So. Apologies for having to go back and restate that. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, I'm the charioteer. I, I'm driving wherever you'd like me to. So uh, forwards, backwards, sideways, uh, it's all the same to me. Um, so tell us, um, was there anything else about the book? I realized that we, uh, uh, that we should wind down given your time constraints. But was there anything else about the book that you wanted to touch on or share? Vyasa is this magical figure. He is an extraordinary figure, and unlike mo many of the other characters in the poem, he has has not really received cult status in uh, India. You, uh, in India, people still worship Arjuna and Krishna. Uh, in some places, there are cults of Karna. In other places, there are cults of Bhima. Um, Draupadi certainly has her cults in the south. Um, Vyasa is not worshipped for some reason. I find that very strange. Someone who is so uh, comprehensive spiritually, intellectually, conceptually, um, and poetically hasn't received, say, greater status in literature and ritual practice. And it's, it, it's puzzled me. I, perhaps you can answer that, being the charioteer. Oh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps there is no answer for such things. Uh, but if Vyasa emerges as a narrative figure uh, in the Mahabharata that was mythologized perhaps as the, the divider or the organizer of the Vedas, perhaps there's a sense of Vyasa's role as this um, literary figure uh, that is much more entrenched than the roles of, say, other sages such as Markandeya, where one can conceive of there once having been a cult of Markandeya. Um, huh. but, but perhaps Vyasa's biography, he's so, um, he's so stringently literary in his genesis and essence so as to uh, really problematize um, uh, deification as other sages, perhaps. Right. Who knows? right. Which has occurred to me as you're asking. Right. It puzzled me as to where Vyasa originates historically, in terms of literature, um, maybe even in terms of geography, where, where that conception, that initial conception of that figure, whether uh, genetically conceived or intellectually conceived, where that comes from. I, I, I cannot identify that, and it's really puzzled me. Is this, because the Mahabharata was first performed up in Afghanistan, you know that, at Takshashila. So maybe he comes from a, a tradition up there, um, which was then imported into, into India. But it, it's, it's a fascination which I have, and I, I've not come across any uh, indication as to how to answer that question. So what you're saying about Markandeya could be very interesting in that respect. Um, if you can track 
the, the genesis of that of such a character, maybe you can use that tracking system to tr to look at somebody like Vyasa. Well, there's certainly, I think, um, uh, fascinating work to be done in our field in terms of, uh, for example, I think our last interview was with Brian Collins on um, uh, the other Rama, where he looks at Parashurama across the ages and, and the mythology of that figure. Uh, for example, um, I consider doing something similar with uh, Markandeya, which would be a huge project. But certainly there's a lot to be said about these rich characters and how they morph over time and the elements of their stories, which may be more uh, pervasive or, or, or structurally important. Um, and Vyasa is perhaps uh, foremost on that list, given his status uh, within the tradition. Um, a, a murky, uh, polyphonic, uh, intriguing, enigmatic character that uh, certainly um, certainly befits the, the nature of the work that he is credited to have authored. Um, so before we let you go, tell us what are you working on now? I'm working upon this idea of Diana, which we talked about earlier. What I'm interested in is apperception, A-P-P-E-R-C-E-P-T-I-O-N, apperception, when a subject perceives himself or herself as distinct from um, the one who is perceiving. And for me, when you have these moments of apperception, something very interesting is occurring. And that is what I'm looking at. Um, the, the end of Sappho 31, the, 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 the Greek lyric poem, Sappho says, I appear to me like death, um, for instance. Um, and how that perception of myself, but from my own point of view, is engaging of the world, uh, is what I'm trying to uh, analyze. Um, and it comes from that, it's, it's in my book, about that moment where Vyasa, that generates the poem where Vyasa actually appears in the poem. So I'm just exploring that particular moment. That's the future for me. <laughs> well, that's uh, certainly uh, fascinating. It reminds me of um, sort of the two birds in the tree of life, one eating the fruit, bitter and sweet, recoiling and rejoicing, and the other bird just looking on, um, as if those two impulses were in the same individual. Right, right. Right. Um, but how do you identify that in literature and how is that manifest in narratives? That's because you, you have to have work with evidence. You have to have some empirical substance. So, but yes, you're absolutely right. That's the same model. Fascinating. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've been speaking with Dr. Kevin McGrath um, of Cambridge University on his intriguing book, Vyasa uh, Dupes. Until next time, keep reading and keep listening.